All right, well, good to see everybody. We uh, have not <laughs> met on Wednesday nights for over a month since uh, I was in Israel for a while and some other things were going on. So we started Exodus right before uh, the end of uh, October. And um, as we started Exodus, we said that between the end of um, Genesis and the beginning of Exodus, about 400 years has passed. And during that time, of course, Jacob and his family came down to Egypt because there was a famine in the land of Canaan when uh, Joseph revealed himself to his brethren. Uh, of course, Jacob for many years thought Joseph was dead. Now to find out he's alive, he's overwhelmed with joy. And uh, Joseph says, look, I'm uh, a prime minister down here. I'll take care of you and the family. Uh, I want you all to come down and live in the land of Goshen. So they did. They moved down to Goshen, and that's where they remained. And uh, during that 400-year time, God greatly multiplied uh, the Jewish people. In fact, so much so that the Pharaoh at that time uh, became paranoid of these people. God was blessing them so much, and they were multiplying so fast, that uh, he felt that uh, if they wanted to, they could rise up and defeat the Egyptians. So he was nervous. He was very, you know, and so what he did was he uh, ordered the midwives of Egypt that when they were to deliver or when they were delivering the Jewish babies, the male child uh, children were to be uh, killed and the girl babies left alive. But the midwives feared God. And so they did not do that. They kept the male children alive as well. And Pharaoh called the ministers, what's going on? I told you to kill these Hebrew boys. And they said, well, the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women. I mean, by the time we get there, they've already delivered. They're hardy women. Okay. And so God blessed them for, uh, you know, for not obeying the king's command to destroy these uh, little Hebrew uh, boys. And uh, we read at the end of chapter 1, So Pharaoh commanded all his people, saying, Every son who was born, you shall catch. So now he puts it on to... The Jewish people, they're to kill their boys themselves who are born to them. Every son who was born, you shall cast into the river, and every daughter you shall save alive. Verse 1 of chapter 2, And a man of the house of Levi went and took as wife a daughter of Levi. So the woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that he was a beautiful child, she hid him three months. Now we learn from chapter 6, verse 20, that Moses' father's name was Amram, and his mother's name was Jochebed. Why would Jochebed, and of course Amram too, but it seems like she had the dominant faith because the Holy Spirit singles her out. All right, Why would Jochebed defy the king's order uh, and not kill her little baby boy, this newborn, uh, when, if they were found out, her and her husband, that they had not done what the king had commanded, uh, it would probably result in their deaths as well. Now you say, well, that's easy. Jacob, it was a mother. And a mother's love for her child would have motivated her to do whatever she had to do to try to save that child, even if it put her own life at risk. Besides, Moses was such a cute kid, she couldn't bring herself to hurt him, okay? And I've actually heard people say that. That was the reasoning. Well, let me just say this. I can't argue with the logic, of course. A mother's love for her children is something that can't be underestimated. But there's another reason for what they did, for why they did this, why they didn't kill their little son, all right? A biblical reason. We read in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 23, that the reason they defied the king's order was because they did it based on Faith. In fact, Hebrews 11.23, By faith Moses, when he was born, was hidden three months by his parents because they saw he was a beautiful child and they were not afraid of the king's command. Okay? But the NIV captures the meaning a little more clearly. By faith Moses' parents hid him for three months after he was born because they saw he was, listen, no ordinary child and they were not afraid of the king's edict it wasn't that moses was just a beautiful child i'm sure that was part of it 
The text implies they knew he was no ordinary child. What does that mean? Well, to me it means that God must have revealed to them something about this child. God must have revealed to them something about this child. We're already, we've already seen how that Amram and Jochebed hid Moses for three months by faith. Now Paul says faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So I think it's safe to say that God had revealed to them, to Moses' parents, his plan for this child. That's why it says at the end of uh, 11, uh, Hebrews 11, verse 23 in the NIV, uh, and also in the New King James, they were not afraid of the king's edict or command. Apparently, God had told them he had plans for this child. And they were not to be afraid of the king's command. They were not to kill this baby boy. And by faith, they hid him three months. And I also believe that as Jochebed raised Moses for the first three years of his life until he was weaned, I believe both her and her husband communicated this to Moses, even though he's a little guy, just a toddler. Uh, I believe God gave this little child the ability to understand what his parents were saying to him. And they were no doubt had told him, look, God has got a plan for your life. He has revealed to us. He is going to use you. And I believe God revealed to them he was going to use Moses, this child, to eventually grow into a deliverer, somebody that God would use to deliver his people out of Egypt. I believe Moses knew the plan of God for his life. Why do I say that? How do I believe that? Well, I believe it based on something Stephen said in Acts chapter 7 when he's given his defense before the Sanhedrin and he's rehearsing their history as the Jewish people. It says in Acts 7 verse 20, at this time, now he's talking, he's gotten to Moses, all right? At this time Moses was born and was well-pleasing to God and he was brought up in his father's house for three months. But when he was set out, Pharaoh's daughter took him away and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was mighty in words and deeds. And when he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brethren, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them suffer wrong, he defended and avenged him who was oppressed and struck down the Egyptian. Listen, verse 25 is key. For he supposed that his brethren would have understood that God would deliver them by his hand, but they did not understand. See, he's fully convinced that God allowed him to be in this situation because God had a plan for his life, and that plan would include Moses delivering his people from their slavery in Egypt. Well, back to Exodus 2, verse 3. But when she could no longer hide him, so three months she hides this baby. When she could no longer hide him, why? Because he's probably crying a lot louder than he was at one time, okay? She took an ark of bulrushes for him and uh, daubed it with asphalt and pitch, put the child in it, and laid it in the reeds by the river's bank. And his sister stood afar off to know what would be done to him. Now, Amram and Jochebed had two other children. Uh, Miriam, Moses' sister, was the oldest, and then Aaron uh, was the second, and he was three years older than Moses. We learn that from Exodus 7, verse 7. So Miriam, then Aaron, and now Moses. It's interesting, though, to see the method that Jochebed used to save her son. She made a little ark of bulrushes, okay, and, uh, and wove them together. Then she took asphalt pitch, you know, and she daubed it on this little basket or ark until it was completely sealed and now waterproof. You say, that reminds me of what Noah did. Well, that's very true, okay? If you're thinking, well, that sounds familiar. Well, that's what God had Noah do to the ark he made. His was a little bigger, of course, but had him cover the ark inside and out with pitch. This would serve then to waterproof it. In fact, the Hebrew word translated ark in verse 3 is only used one other time in the Old Testament, and that, of course, as we just said, it was used in relation to Noah's ark. So is the Holy Spirit trying to draw some parallels? Possibly. And it could be that Jochebed had, in fact, in her mind, Noah and the ark, and how God used that big ark to save eight people through the waters of judgment. All right? 
Maybe she said, thought to herself, well, I'll just follow God's design here, make a very small version of that, and put Moses in it, and put him in the very waters of judgment that God wanted me to throw him into to drown him, and see if God will spare him. And she did it by faith. Because again, she believed with her husband that God had a plan for this child, because I believe God revealed it to them that he was going to use this child. But I think that J. Vernon McGee has something important to say about the balance between trusting God and acting responsibly in a given situation. And I really wanted to read this to you because there's so many Christians who mean well, but I think at times they have an unrealistic view of trusting God. Trusting God is wonderful, but sometimes they see it in such a way as, if I trust God, I don't have to do anything. Just trust God. Well, there's a balance. We trust God, but then we act, okay? God often will ask us to trust him, but then act responsibly or do something that he wants us to do. Here's what McGee said. He said, Jochebed had a serious problem. She could, she could no longer hide her child. A lot of pious people, Christians, would have acted differently from this mother by saying, well, we're just going to trust the Lord. That's a wonderful statement to make. But do you really trust the Lord when you're playing the fool? Jochebed would have been foolish to keep her child in the house when a guard passing by might have heard the baby cry. It would have meant instant death for Moses. McGee says, I can hear others saying, well, I would just trust that, that the baby would not cry when the soldier passed by. He said, well, how do you know that? I mean, faith is not a leap in the dark. God asks us to believe that which is good and solid. God never asks us to do foolish things. Jochebed did a sensible thing. She made a little ark and put Moses in it, end quote. So you see the balance. And we see it all throughout Scripture, okay? Uh, Lazarus has been dead and buried four days, right? Jesus is going to raise him from the dead. What does he say? He says, move the stone away, right? So he had people do what they could do, and then he did what only he can do. He called uh, Lazarus out of the tomb. He resurrected him. Okay? I mean, all throughout the scriptures, we see this balance that God is asking us to trust him, but then to act responsibly. And uh, we need to, to practice that. Well, Exodus 2, verse 4, and his sister, that'd be Moses' sister, Miriam, put this little ark in the, on the Nile, on the Nile River, and uh, Miriam stood back to see what was going to happen. Okay, she stood afar off to know what would be done to him. Verse 5, Then the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river, and her maidens walked along the riverside. And when she saw the ark among the reeds, she sent her maid to get it. And when she had opened it, so apparently it was a little ark with a little lid on top, okay, she opens it up, and behold, the baby wept. So she had compassion on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. And again, I like what McGee said. He's very practical. He said, at that very moment was the right time for the child to cry. In fact, I believe the Lord pinched little Moses to get him to cry. And God brought together two things that he had made, a baby's cry and a woman's heart. Pharaoh's daughter just could not pass this little baby by. End quote. Now, verse 7, then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call a nurse for you from the Hebrew women, that she may nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the maiden went and called the child's mother. Do you, as I was reading this, first of all, does it really come through? Moses is writing this, but he doesn't say, My sister went and called my mom, and she came and took care of me. Do you see how third person this is? It's the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is writing through Moses in a way that comes through, I think, clearly here. That this was, yes, Moses was writing this, but he's writing it under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is talking through him right now, okay? And uh, you can see the almost the detachedness in the narrative. So again, verse 8, So Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the maiden went and called the child's mother, then Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. I just love the way 
the Lord turns what the devil intends for evil into good for his people. Here's the very Pharaoh that had ordered the death of the Hebrew baby boys. Now he's raising one in his own palace at his own expense and even paying Moses' mother to take care of him for the first three years of his life and to wean him and so on. This is a sweet deal. I mean, the Lord is so awesome. I mean, this is divine irony, okay? What Satan intended for evil, God just rubbed it in Satan's face. Yeah, you want to play that game? All right. I'll have not only spare this child, but I'll have his own mother raise him and get paid the first three years for doing I just love the Lord, you know. But, but guys, listen, God would use these next three years until Moses was weaned and then he was given to Pharaoh's daughter to be raised in the palace. God was, he said, well, three years. What could God accomplish in three years to, to lay a spiritual foundation in the life of this child? What could a child learn in the first three years of life that would be of any real value? Well, all we have to do is look at the story of Moses. I believe Jochebed and Amram were faithful and diligent. And every chance they got, they spoke to Moses. They sang to Moses. They instructed Moses. They just saturated him with God. So much so that they laid such a strong spiritual foundation in his little life in the first three years after he left there for the next 20 years. He went to the finest schools in Egypt, and they couldn't erase the foundation that God had laid in those first three years. Parents, don't ever underestimate the value and power of teaching your children as early as you can about the Lord, laying for them a strong spiritual foundation. Listen, it will safeguard them from the indoctrination of the world once they get out into school and then on their own. And again, Proverbs 22, 6 automatically comes to mind. Train up a child. Not just teach a child. Train up a child. I played football. It was a combination of teaching and training. If you just sat in front of a blackboard and watched the coach tell you how to play football, you might get it intellectually. You'll never be able to handle it on the field. We need to teach our kids the principles of God's Word and then we need to make them apply them into their lives. If they steal something, they've got to make it right. They've got to go confess what they've done, and they've got to, of course, give it back and so on. My mom did that to me when I was a little guy. We went to the, uh, the 5 and 10, the Ben Franklin. Uh, it's going back a few years. And that was only about 5, I think. And we, she was in there doing something, and I, I grabbed a candy bar. She didn't see me grab the candy bar. We're walking out, and I'm unwrapping a candy bar. And she says, where'd you get the candy bar? Oh, I got it from the store. You stole the candy bar? Well, you know, I don't know if I understood the concept. I probably did. Uh, she goes, come on, right back into the store. I had to confess what I had done. You know, she paid for it, of course, but I had to confess that was hard, that I had stolen a candy bar. I never stole another candy bar the rest of my life because she trained me. She trained me, see. She gave me the principle and then made me apply it into my life. That's what we need to do. And if you train a child in the way they should go, Proverbs 22, 6 says, when they are old, they will not depart from it. And the word in the Hebrew for old is when whiskers grow. Okay, When they get to be teenagers. Not that they're always going to do everything right, but they'll have a good handle on how to live the right way. So Exodus 2, verse 10, And the child grew, and she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter. Now he's weaned. And he became her son. So she called his name Moses, saying, Because I drew him out of the water. So the name Moses, which means to draw out, was a name given to him by Pharaoh's daughter. But God would use it to remind Moses every day of his life that God had drawn him out of death for a purpose. And that was to be a deliverer to the people of God at one point. Guys, in that regard, think about it. We're all Moses. We're all Moses. Those who have been drawn out of death to live a life of delivering others out of the bondage of the devil and the world which Pharaoh and Egypt are a type of. In fact, the word for church is the Greek word ekklesia and means an assembly of called out ones. Those who have been called out of the world, in the Old Testament vernacular, drawn out of the world maybe. Those who have been taken from the world. 
redeemed and then sent back into the world to be a light and to save those, set them free from the devil's bondage by bringing the gospel of Jesus Christ to them. We call it the Great Commission. The Great Commission. Go into all the world and preach the good news to every person because only the good news of Jesus Christ has the power to set the captives free, has the power to smash the devil's prisons, to break the chains that bind, and to set us free. And for freedom, Christ has set us free, Paul said. Therefore, don't be entangled again in a yoke of bondage. If God has set you free, then you walk in that freedom. Don't give yourself back over to something God has set you free from, because Paul said it will entangle you again. So we need to keep walking in that freedom every day. Verse 11, Now it came to pass in those days when Moses was grown. Let me just stop there. Uh, the princess, of course, Pharaoh's daughter, adopted Moses as her own son, which means that Moses had a, a favored position in the land of Egypt. And he was given a special education, as I said, because he was um, raised in the palace, right in Pharaoh's house. Uh, therefore, as Pharaoh's son, okay, in a sense, adopted son, he was groomed to be uh, something in Pharaoh's administration, which meant he had access to a special education. We read in Acts 7, verse 22, as Stephen is again giving his defense, he said, Moses was learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was mighty in words and deeds. Moses was quite an intelligent man, a statesman. In fact, uh, one author said, and I quote, Egypt was one of the most academic and scientific societies among ancient cultures. It is reasonable to think that Moses was instructed in geography, uh, history, grammar, writing, literature, philosophy, and music. I believe Moses was a scholar. But not only that, the ancient Jewish historian Josephus wrote that Moses was actually uh, an heir who was uh, to Pharaoh and in line for the throne of Egypt. Moses could quite literally have gained the entire world. He was in line to be the next pharaoh. Egypt at this time was the world governing empire. That means if Moses would have become the next pharaoh, he would have literally gained the entire world, in a sense. In fact, as he was a young man, Josephus tells us that while a young man, he led the armies of Egypt in victorious battles against the Ethiopians. He was a scholar. He was a military general or tactician. And since Moses was a member of the royal family and in line for the throne, it probably meant that everywhere he went, he rode in a royal chariot, attended by guards, and people constantly cheering his name as they saw him as the next king of Egypt. Well, guys, all of that continued in Moses' life until he hit the age of 40. How do I know 40? Because in Acts 7, verse 23, it says when he became 40 years old, he decided to play out what he believed God had called him to do, to be a deliverer, okay? It tells us at that time he forsook the riches of Egypt. Why? Well, again, because he had always believed God had plans for his life. The first 40 years he was there in Egypt, he was... Uh, going to the best schools. He was involved in the military. He was, a, uh, he was uh, growing as a man and a scholar and so on. But he always believed that God had a purpose for our life, his life beyond Egypt. In fact, turn to Hebrews chapter 11. At age 40, as we had just said, even though he was next in line for the throne and could have gained the whole world as the next pharaoh, it's reminiscent of what Jesus said. What profit is it to a man if he does gain the whole world but loses his what? His soul. What is worth losing your soul for, even if it's the whole world? Because how long could you really enjoy it? A few fleeting years and then an eternity apart from God? See, Moses was a lot smarter than that. Hebrews 11, verse 24, by faith, Moses when he became of age, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt, for he looked to the reward. 
By faith he forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. So in other words, Moses decided that nothing in this life was worth losing his eternity over. He decided that he would rather suffer affliction with God's people than to be the next king of Egypt, because what good is it to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin for a short time and enter into a, into a, a godless eternity? I mean, he was pretty wise. He said, I'd rather suffer a few years now and have an eternity with God in heaven than to have a few years of glory now and be separated from God for eternity. Again, all his life he believed that God had saved him, had allowed him to grow up in Pharaoh's house because he had a special purpose for him. And that was, again, to deliver God's people from their slavery in Egypt. Now, with regard to that, he was right. He was right. Where he messed up was in rushing the timing of God. Say, yes, he was right. God had chosen he was going to be a deliverer to deliver God's people from Egypt. Where he messed up was he rushed God's timetable. He put God on his own timetable and decided, well, the time has come for me to be that deliverer. That was his problem. We don't tell God when he's going to need to accept our service. He tells us when he's ready. For everything there is a season, a time for every purpose under heaven. Under heaven, God sets the timetable. Verse 11, now it came to pass in those days when Moses was grown, that he went out to his brethren and looked at their burdens. And he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his brethren. So he looked this way and that way, and when he saw no one, he killed the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. And when he went out the second day, behold, two Hebrew men were fighting. And he said to the one who did the wrong, Why are you striking your companion? Then he said, Who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you intend to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? So Moses feared and said, Surely this thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of this matter, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from the face of Pharaoh and dwelt in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. And again, Stephen tells us that Moses supposed that his brethren would have understood that God would deliver him by his hand, but they did not understand. Guys, this will be the first, but not the last, taste of ministry for Moses. And it was a hard lesson to learn. A lesson that everybody in ministry has to learn sooner or later, most of the time sooner. And that was that the people you are trying to help many times don't want your help. Or if you do help them, they don't appreciate what you've done for them. Now, the ultimate example of this is the Lord Jesus Christ, who went around doing good. All he ever did was help people and love people and heal and so on, deliver and so on. But when it was all said and done, the fickle crowd cried, crucify him. Away with him, we want Barabbas to be delivered to us. It's a sad thing. I think of men like Paul at the end of his life. Most of the people that had been with him in ministry had forsook him. Some had gone back to the world. He said, there's only a couple that stand with me. I think Timothy was one and John Mark was another. Oftentimes, ministry can be a lonely place because as you seek to help people, many times they don't really appreciate what you've done for them, or they appreciate it, but only if you keep doing. So if you're there nine times out of ten, they appreciate it, but if you can't be there that tenth time, well, you've let them down. So we have to understand that going in. All right, We have to understand, look, it's good to want to help people. Jesus did it, but he's the example. Look how they treated him. He even said to his disciples, if they've hated me, they're going to hate you also. Okay? I mean, a servant is not greater than his master, and so on. If they've hated me, look what they've done to me. They're going to do those things to you too. That's ministry. So you have to understand. You have to right now decide: Are you going to do it for the applause of people, or are you going to do it for the praise of God? It's up to you. But the thing we need to understand, guys, from the passage is that even though God had chosen Moses to be a deliverer, He had not called him yet. To begin that ministry when Moses thought the time had come. 
Somebody has said that God is never in a hurry when it comes to preparing his instruments for ministry. And the greater the ministry, the longer the preparation. Do you realize at this point Moses was 40 years old? He flees to the wilderness of Midian. It would be another 40 years of preparation before he was ready for the ministry God had ordained his life to. Another 40 years. Think about that. 40 years is a long time. He believed God had called him to be a deliverer. First 40 years preparing, he decides the time has come. He was wrong. He had to flee. It would take God another 40 years to do the work in Moses before he could begin to work through Moses. Keep that in mind. Keep that in mind. God wants to use us. Often we're so in a hurry, we want to cut corners. I'm ready, Lord. How long have you been saved? I've been saved five days already. I'm ready to be a pastor. God said, really? Uh, I don't think so. And he you know, puts us through the school of hard knocks to teach us some good lessons. So Moses fled to the land of Midian, an area to the southeast. Uh, in fact, that area today is both Saudi Arabia on the east of the Red Sea and Egypt on the west of the Red Sea. So it was a big area that, uh, that uh, stretched across the Red Sea, all right, Midian. And uh, the Midianites actually were relatives of the Jewish people uh, through uh, uh, Keturah, uh, Abraham's wife in Genesis 25, verse 2. You can read about that. So they were relatives of the Jewish people through Abraham's wife, Keturah. Verse 16. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and drew water, and they filled the troughs to water their father's flock. But the shepherds came and drove them away. So, you know, most of the shepherds were boys. Of course, uh, you know, uh, Jethro was his name, uh, had daughters. And they would go and do all the work. They'd take the water out of the well and fill all the troughs. When they did all the work, the boy shepherds would chase them away and then use the water to water their flocks. Okay? This, I guess, went on uh, all the time. Okay, so it took the girls a lot, lot longer than it should have to water uh, their father's flocks. Well, Moses was, was standing nearby, probably hanging out by the well, figuring out what to do next. And he sees these little young gals come and fill the trough with water. And then he sees the boy shepherds trying to chase them away. And so Moses, of course, he's a tough guy. So he grabs him by the neck, probably shakes him around a little bit and, you know, get out of here, kids, you know, that kind of thing. And he watered their flock. Verse 18. When they came to Ruel, uh, that's another name for Jethro. Uh, Ruel means the friend of God. Came to Ruel, uh, their father, he said, Ruel or Jethro said to the girls, How is it that you have come so soon today? Uh, you know, it usually takes your girls, you know, hours. What, you're back so soon. And they said, An Egyptian delivered us from the hand of the shepherds. Now, they think Moses is an Egyptian. Why? Probably because of the way he's dressed. Okay? Because of the way he's dressed. He's still wearing the robes of court. Okay? I mean, he fled pretty quick. Didn't have time to change. And uh, so they think he's, he's dressed like an Egyptian. They think he is an Egyptian. They said this Egyptian delivered us from the hand of the shepherds. And he also drew enough water for us and watered water the flock. So he said to his daughters, well, where is he? Why is it that you have left the man? Call him that he may eat bread. Good. Invite him to dinner or lunch, whatever it is, right? Then Moses was content to live with the man. And he, Jethro, gave Zipporah, his daughter, to Moses. And she bore him a son, and he called his name Gershom. For he said, I have been a stranger in a foreign land. Now, guys, for the next 40 years, Moses finds himself living a very different life than he had lived the first 40 years of his life. I like what Warren Worsby said, because I think he nails it. He said, and I quote, The man who was, quote, mighty in word indeed, unquote, is now in the lonely pastures taking care of stubborn sheep. But that was just the kind of preparation he needed for leading a nation of stubborn sheep. Israel was God's special flock, Psalm 100, verse 3 says. And Moses, his chosen shepherd. Moses, 40 years of waiting and working, prepared him for a lifetime of faithful ministry. God doesn't lay hands suddenly on his servants, but takes time to equip them for the work, end quote. 
And another author added this, he said, For 40 years, Moses undertook the toilsome life of a sheep herder in the Sinai area, thus gaining valuable knowledge of the topography of the Sinai Peninsula, which later was helpful as he led the Israelites in that wilderness land. End quote. All right, God was preparing Moses. Now, uh, verse 23. Now what happened in the process of time that the king of Egypt died. Then the children of Israel groaned because of the bondage, and they cried out, and their cry came up to God because of the bondage. So God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And God looked upon the children of Israel, and God acknowledged them. Guys, Moses is now 80 years old, and I'm sure any thoughts of being used by God to deliver his people was nothing more at this point than a distant memory. I think Moses felt he had blown it. Okay, I think Moses knew he had rushed the plan of God. Uh, he had blown it. He, had to be, he was driven out of Egypt, and he probably thought to himself, that's it. I mean, I can't be a deliverer of God's people. I'm out here in Midian now. This is my life. I've been here 40 years as a shepherd. I just feel I've blown it. God's going to raise up somebody else to use to deliver his people. I'm done, okay? I'm done. And a lot of God's servants um, feel that way when maybe they blow it. I think of Peter. Jesus told him, Peter, before the night is out, before the cock crows twice, you'll have denied me three times. And Peter assured the Lord, Lord, though these other disciples deny you, I will never deny you. And of course, Peter did that very thing. And what happened? He went out and wept bitterly. For three days, for three days, Peter was isolated, weeping, while Jesus was in the grave. And I'm sure Peter thought, my ministry for the Lord is over. I did the very thing I promised. That's the, that's the problem. Don't promise God anything. It's a work of the flesh. It's putting confidence in your own strength. We don't promise God anything. We ask God for grace to do whatever he wants us to do. And I'm confident that Peter thought he was done, just like Moses. I think that Peter thought that there was no way God could ever use him because of what he had done, denying the Lord. What Peter didn't realize during those three days where he was weeping bitterly was his greatest days of ministry were yet future. And in fact, the very failure that Peter thought had finished him, God had used to prepare him to break him of self-confidence. I think that, you know, Moses, he was a big shot. He was a, a, a big shot. He was used to doing what he wanted and getting his way. And I think he set the timetable. It was too quick. He blew it. God still had some work to do in Moses. All those years in the wilderness were not God forsaking Moses. They were God, it was God's way of preparing him. He had to learn to be a shepherd. Because he was about to inherit a very honorary flock. You know, and, and, and there's something about shepherds, from what I understand, they're pretty patient people because they're dealing with stubborn animals all day long. And they just have, they understand the nature of sheep. And so they, they don't, you know, they just do what they have to do. They have to be patient. And um, I think that Moses learned patience, and he would need all of it, during those 40 years, uh, as we read uh, later on, in the backside of the desert. The backside of the desert is also called God's school of ministry. It's where God breaks us, okay? It's where Paul spent three years uh, in Arabia, maybe in the same area. Maybe he went down to the very place Moses was because Paul was, uh, was uh, trying to seek God. In three years, Jesus taught him firsthand the theology that would come to be known as the gospel of grace. So, look, mistakes don't threaten the kingdom of God. Rebellion does. To be zealous and maybe even overly zealous where we mess up, that doesn't affect God's call in our life. It just teaches us to slow down and trust him more. It's rebellion that closes the door of God's will or plans on our lives. Moses was not rebellious. He was zealous. But it was zeal not mixed with knowledge. But uh, I just love the fact, and don't, get, don't miss this either. I just, 
am amazed at how God will wait, oftentimes, till all of our strength is gone. But we're all kind of tired and shriveled up, you know, and we don't even want to be in ministry anymore. And God says, okay, now it's time to be used. Well, what? Lord, I'm old, I'm tired, I'm worn out. Yeah, you're perfect. Because now you're not going to put faith in your own strength, you're going to trust me. When I'm weak, then I'm strong, Paul said. All right? Well, chapter 3. Now, Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the back of the desert and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. Another name for Horeb is Mount what? Sinai. Mount Sinai. So he came to Horeb, the mountain of God, and the angel of the Lord. This angel of the Lord was none other than Jesus Christ. Sometimes the term angel of the Lord just means an angel. Sometimes it means Jesus Christ in an Old Testament appearance called the Theophany. We know it was Jesus because he called himself God from the burning bush. We'll see that in a second, right? So the angel of the Lord, Jesus Christ, appeared to him. The word angel just means messenger. Don't let that throw you, okay? He appeared to Moses, uh, to him, in a flame of fire from the midst of a bush. So he looked. Moses looked, and behold, the bush was burning with fire, but the bush was not consumed. Then Moses said, I will now turn aside and see this great sight, why the bush does not burn. I want you to see something very important from this. You might miss this with a superficial reading. Listen, a bush burning in the desert, the the hot desert, was not a unique thing. I'm sure that during 40 years of tending his father-in-law's sheep, in the desert, he had seen many bushes that had ignited from the great heat and dryness, all right? Uh, that wasn't unique. What was unique about this bush and why Moses was drawn to it was that, listen, it was on fire but was not being burned up or consumed in the flame. Tradition says that this was an acacia bush, the thorn bush of the desert. Thorns in Scripture are a type of sin. Of course, fire in Scripture is a symbol of judgment. So here, and listen to this, the Holy Spirit is presenting to us, listen, a model of grace. A model of grace. The bush, sin, in the fires of God's judgment, yet not consumed. And that's what drew Moses to God. His grace. His grace. It wasn't God's righteousness, or his justice, or his judgment that drew Moses to him. And listen, neither do those things draw us to God. They make us terrified of God. He's righteous, and holy, and just, and judges sin. Oh, that is something that terrifies me, but wouldn't necessarily draw me to him. What drew Moses to that bush where the Lord was, was grace. The fact that sin could be judged and the sinner not destroyed. Guys, that's the very definition of grace. Not getting what we deserve because someone else paid the price. Jesus Christ. Okay? Jesus Christ. Did Moses realize all of that when he looked at that burning bush? No, probably not. But we understand it as New Testament Christians, don't we? I think Arthur W. Pink says it well. He said, and I quote, Fire in Scripture is uniformly the emblem of divine judgment, that is, of God's holiness in active opposition against evil. The final word on the subject is, our God is a consuming fire, from Hebrews 12, 29. Here, then, is the deeper mystery. How can God, who is a consuming fire, burning up all that is contrary to his holy nature, reveal himself to us without consuming us? Or, to put it in another form, how can he who is of pure eyes than to behold evil and can, cannot bear to look upon iniquity, Habakkuk 1.13, have to do with men other than in judgment? Nothing but the gospel contains any real solution to this problem. The gospel tells us how grace reigns. Not at the expense of righteousness, but listen, through righteousness unto eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord, Romans 5.21. And Pink, what he is saying is, look, our God is a consuming fire. And he has to consume in judgment anything that is sinful and unholy. Yet he allows us to come before him 
and we are not destroyed. How is that possible, the gospel of grace? Because another was punished in our place. Jesus Christ took our sins upon himself. The fire of God's judgment was upon him, which allowed me not to be consumed, and so on. Incredible, okay? Incredible. But look, what drew Moses wasn't theological in nature, okay? It wasn't like pink. Well, let me see now. Uh, this represents this and this. Okay, yeah. No, I mean, what drew Moses was simply the fact that there was a bush in the desert that was on fire and was not being burned up. What he was about to find out was that God was using that burning bush, a symbol of grace, to call Moses into the ministry. Remember what Paul the Apostle said? He admitted that he didn't deserve to be in ministry, but he said, I am what I am by the grace of God. If God would have used Moses 40 years earlier, Moses might have been prone to think because of his training, his upbringing, his wisdom, his strength, that he deserved to be in ministry. So God let Moses fail and let Moses' strength wane so that when the time came, it was a pure work of God's grace, just like with Abraham and Sarah. He let them get so far beyond the years of childbearing until their bodies were reproductively dead. And then God stepped in and gave them a miracle child, Isaac, the son of promise. Because God wanted Isaac and his descendants, of course, the messianic line leading up to Messiah himself, to be a miracle line of God's grace. Just like he wants our lives to be uh, a miracle of his grace. Because he wants to get the glory for the work he does. Exodus 3, verse 4. So when the Lord saw that, he turned aside to look. God called to him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here I am. Then he said, Do not draw near this place. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place where you stand is holy ground. Moreover, he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face. For he was afraid to look upon God. Now, one side note before we go on. Notice that God says to Moses, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. By this time, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob had been dead for several centuries. And yet God doesn't say, I was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You say, well, what's your point? Well, turn to Matthew 22, and I'll show you. Now, you remember, we're just uh, a day or two from the cross uh, at this point in Matthew's gospel. And the uh, Pharisees and Sadducees and chief priests are, are playing uh, kind of like a wicked game of, of tag, okay? Uh, each team comes and tries to trip Jesus up, and he's so wise, because he's God, that he... You know, he beats their little challenge or whatever, and they slink away, and here comes the next, you know, the next group, okay? Well, it was the Sadducees' turn. Matthew 22, verse 23, the same be the Sadducees who say there is no resurrection. Now, the Sadducees were the supreme materialists of their day. They didn't believe in the supernatural, in angels, in miracles, or in resurrection. They believed once you died, that was it, all right? So they didn't believe in a resurrection or life after death. So they came to Jesus and asked him, saying, Teacher, Moses said if a man, that if a man dies having no children, his brother shall marry his wife and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there was with us seven brothers. The first died after he had married, and having no offspring, left his wife to his brother. Likewise the second also, and the third even to the seventh. Last of all, the woman died also. Therefore, in the resurrection, whose wife of the seven will she be? For they all had her as wife. Jesus answered and said to them, You are mistaken, not knowing the scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels of God in heaven. But concerning the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was spoken to you by God, saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob? Jesus said, God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And when the multitudes heard this, they were astonished at his teaching. See, Jesus used 
the tense of a verb to build a whole doctrine on. You think your, your, you think your Bible is inspired down to the smallest detail? You better believe it is. Every jot, tittle, cross of the T, dot of the I in the original was put there by the Holy Spirit and has meaning and there's no extraneous words in God's word that are not necessary. Okay? And here, Jesus used the very... And the Sadducees only believed the first five books of the Bible were in, of their scriptures, the Tanakh, was inspired. So, Deuteron, uh, so Genesis through Deuteronomy. So what does Jesus do? He quotes to them uh, out of uh, Exodus, the second book of the Pentateuch, okay, where God said, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, centuries after they'd already died. And God is, Jesus is saying to them, look, he didn't say I was their God. I am their God. They're still with me. They're alive with me. There is life after death. Wow. I bring that up just to say to you that you know, don't let those people tell you that, you know, you spend too much time. And they're, out, they're out there. I've heard people say this. I'm talking about professors now in Bible colleges and seminaries who don't have a high view of Scripture, who will tell you you're spending too much time studying the Bible. How much do you really need to know? Just, you know, get a working understanding of it and then just, you know, draw close to God and whatever. Look, if every jot and tittle has been inspired by the Holy Spirit, I want to know God's word down to the smallest detail because right here, Jesus is telling us that even in the, the tenses of the verbs, and later on Paul would use whether a noun was in the plural or the singular to form another doctrine off of, God's word is his word down to the smallest detail. Get into it, study it, know it, and uh, you'll be blessed because of it. Well, Exodus 3 verse 7 and the Lord said, I have surely seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters, for I know their sorrows. So I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up from that land to a good and large land, to a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites. Now therefore, behold, the cry of the children of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression of which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come now, therefore, and I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. Now you remember when we studied the book of Genesis, that God told Abraham his descendants would be slaves in a foreign land, we know it was Egypt, for 400 years. In fact, Turn to Genesis 15 once. It's important that we just see this. God had prophesied this to Abraham many centuries earlier. When God was making a covenant with Abraham, or at that time, Abram. In verse 13, Genesis 15, verse 13, Then he said to Abram, Know certainly that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, and will serve them, and they will afflict them for 400 years. And also the nation whom they serve, I will judge. So God was going to judge Egypt. Afterwards, they shall come out with great possessions. Now as for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace, and uh, you shall be buried at a good old age. But in the fourth generation, they shall return here, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. So finally that time had come for God to fulfill his promise to deliver his people out of their slavery. And for Moses, this meant that his time had come as well to be used by God for this ministry. However, as I've already said, Moses is 80 years old, okay, at this time. He's no spring chicken and probably a little worn out physically. So he tries to, at this point, he's not very enthusiastic anymore about the prospect of getting into this kind of ministry, all right? Um, and so what he does is he tries to um, get out of the call of God, okay? I mean, he, he tries to pass it on to others. Lord, uh, you know, I'm not really feeling it anymore. Uh, I don't talk good. Uh, call somebody else, Okay. And God would have none of it. God would have none of it, okay? But just so you understand, at this point, a little tired, a little worn out, you know, and uh, 
not really feeling very enthusiastic anymore about this ministry. So verse 11, But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh, and that I should bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? So he said, I will certainly be with you, God is telling you, and this shall be a sign to you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. You'll come back to Mount Horeb, Mount Sinai. Now, of course, as I just said, that was a reference to Sinai, which, by the way, guys, if you um, listen to some of the archaeologists, they will say that, uh, you know, we have excavated the area around Sinai and we have found no evidence of the Exodus. Or, so the Bible is not really true. The problem is there is a mount in Egypt that they call Mount Sinai. They believe that is the Mount Sinai. But Paul tells us in Galatians 4, verse 25, the real Mount Sinai was in Arabia. See, he was down there when he saw the burning bush. He was in this. So, again, you know, trust God's word. Okay, because, you know, you have people that don't know what they're talking about that will try to destroy your faith. You know, eggheads with their PhDs who don't know anything. I'll take God's word any day. Okay, so verse 13. Then Moses said to God, Indeed, when I come to the children of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me uh, to you, uh, and they say to me, Well, what is his name? <laughs> what shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Thus you shall say to the children of Israel, I am has sent me to you. So this is the first time in Scripture God reveals himself as the great I am. Listen, not the great I was or the great I will be. The great I am. You see, inherent in God's name is the idea of God being eternal. For God, there is no past, there is no future. He dwells in the eternal present tense. See, I don't understand that. Well, it's a hard concept, but here's the deal. Now, let me put it this way. I, I heard uh, this illustration years ago. I think Hal Lindsey uh, said it. But, you know, we just came past Thanksgiving. Maybe some of you spent part of the morning watching the Thanksgiving Day Parade, right? It's a tradition for a lot of people to sit and watch the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade. Well, if you're fortunate enough to go there, and my mom, my mom did uh, a few years ago with another couple of girlfriends. They went there and they actually had seats where they could sit and they watched the parade come by. Well, that's the thing. Uh, when you're street level, you can only see the parade come by one part at a time. All right? Uh, you know, and, and, and all you see is what's in front of you. But if you're in a helicopter, and a lot of those shots of the parade were in helicopters looking down, if you were high enough, you could see the entire parade happening at the same time down below. That's how we are uh, in relation to God. We are in time. It's linear for us. We only see what comes is, is be, what is going on today, right now. We have seen the past. We don't know what the future is yet. It's coming. But we see time in a linear way. God is outside of time. God sees all of creation from uh, Adam and Eve all the way to the culmination where Jesus reigns in eternity forever as if it's happening all at the same time. So for God, there is no past, there is no future, it's all God, God is always in the present tense, because he is the great I am, not the great I was, the great I will be. But one author put it this way, because inherent in the name I am also is the idea of self-existence. And so the author says, he is the self-existent one, who always was, always is, and always will be, the faithful and dependable God who calls himself I am. Am. Now you realize that the sacred name of God, I am, is known as a tetragrammaton, which means four letters. Tetragrammaton means four letters. The English word Jehovah comes from these four Hebrew letters, Y-H-W-H. -H. And listen, no one knows for sure the true pronunciation of Y-H-W-H -H because, listen, the ancient Hebrew language did not have any vowels in its alphabet. It was all consonants, okay? And on top of that, the Jewish people would never say the name of God out loud because they believed their lips were too profane to speak the holy name of God. So they never spoke the name of God. Whenever they would read the scriptures and they came to the name, to, to I am, they would always just bow their head and say, the name. Over the course of time, they forgot how to pronounce it, 
Okay? So today we really don't know what the exact pronunciation of YHWH is. Probably Yahweh is the correct pronunciation, although most of us usually pronounce it in an Anglo-Saxon way, Jehovah. That's fine. There's no J sound in Hebrew, but okay. Jehovah, because we that's the word we often use. But uh, you all know, I'm sure, that the word Jehovah is actually a verb. The name of God is actually a verb. And it means to be or to become. And the idea is that God wants to become or to be to you and me whatever we need. Whatever we need. That's why it's often coupled with a noun. So therefore, in our Old Testament scriptures, we read the name of God, Jehovah Shalom. The Lord has become our peace, or the Lord is our peace. Jehovah Jireh. The Lord is our provider. Jehovah Nissi. The Lord is our victory. We read Jehovah Rohi, the Lord is our shepherd. But the greatest of them all is Jehovah Shua, the Lord has become our salvation. Jehovah Shua. In fact, the Hebrew name Joshua and the Greek name Jesus come from that last one, Jehovah Shua. Yehoshua, Jesus uh, in the Greek. Uh, the Lord is our salvation. Look, our greatest need was for salvation more than anything else. And so God came down from heaven, became a man, and died in our place in the person of Jesus Christ, our Yeshua, the Lord who became our salvation. Of course, in John's gospel, Jesus used the term I am, the name of God, uh, at different times, coupled it with different nouns, seven different nouns, as a matter of fact, to communicate in a, a very broad way what he is to us, okay? In John 6, 35, he said, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never hunger. He who believes in me will never thirst. In John 8, 12, he said, I am the light of the world. He who follows after me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. In John 10, verse 7, he said, I am the door. Anyone who enters by me will find salvation. Anyone who tries to come to salvation or heaven any other way, the same as a thief and a robber. John 10, 11, Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. And the good shepherd lays his life down for the sheep. In John eleven twenty five, Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. You realize we have... The I am, which is uh, the name of God coupled with a noun that qualifies what he wants to be to us. I am the resurrection and the life. He who, he who dies, shall, he who believes in me and dies shall live again. He who lives and believes in me shall never die. Right? John 14, 6, he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father except through me. And one more, number 7, John 15, verse 5. Uh, I am the vine. I am the vine. If you abide in me, and I in you together, we will bear much fruit. For without me you can do nothing. But no doubt the one that got him into the most hot water with the religious leaders of his day, where they accused him of blasphemy and tried to kill him as a blasphemer, was when he simply referred to himself as the great I am. John 8, 58 and 9, Jesus said to them, because they were, he was arguing with the scribes and Pharisees. They called him an illegitimate son, pointing to the fact that they didn't believe he was virgin born. His mother had an affair, that he was an illegitimate kid. How could you be the Messiah? You were born in sin. He said, well, you're of your father the devil. Okay, take that. <laughs> he was a liar from the beginning. That's all you guys ever do is lie. But he said to them, Most assuredly I say to you, Before Abraham was, I am. Then they took up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple, going through the midst of them, and so passed by. See, he called himself by the name of God. He said, Look, before Abraham lived, I am. I've always existed. I'm God. Gentiles may miss that, but let me give you a, we, we should be, in, we're indebted to the Pharisees for one thing. Every time Jesus says something important, like I'm God, 
and we'd be prone to maybe miss that. The Holy Spirit emphasizes it by having the Pharisees take up stones to kill him. So when you see the Pharisees taking up stones to throw at Jesus to kill him, stop and say, whoa, something just important just happened here. What did I miss? And it it's always revolves around Jesus declaring his divinity, that he is God. They don't want to hear that. They didn't believe Messiah was going to be God incarnate. They believed, according to Deuteronomy 18, that Moses said that God was going to raise up a deliverer like unto me. Well, they believed that he was going to raise up a man like Moses. No, what Moses was saying is a deliverer, like somebody who would deliver, but he wouldn't be like me in the sense that he's going to be God. But they didn't understand that. So we'll leave it there tonight, and uh, we will pick this up next week, God willing, with verse 15 and continue on as we see God now calling Moses into the ministry and uh, what all of that entailed. So, Father, we thank you, Lord, for your great grace in our lives. We thank you, Lord, that through the stories of these Old Testament saints who were not perfect, who blew it, yet, Lord, your grace was upon them. It wasn't them that you that caused you to choose them and use them. It was simply your sovereignty, your grace, just like it is with all of us, Lord. Father, give us, help us to stop trying to give you a reason to bless us or to use us and just fall on your mercy and grace and say, Lord, I don't deserve the least of your mercies. I don't deserve to serve you in the smallest capacity, but if you will use me, I know I will be what I will be by your grace. So, Lord, thank you that you take the weak, the foolish, the base, the nobodies to do your greatest work through, that you might receive all the glory. So, Father, we ask you to continue to bless these studies in your word. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.